Welcome to Instruction Interruption, a podcast to celebrate New Mexico educators from every corner of our beautiful state. I am host Mandy Torres, the 2020 New Mexico Teacher of the Year. Join us as educators talk pedagogy, practice, and even share lessons learned along their teacher journeys. This podcast is sponsored by the New Mexico Oil and Gas Association and is produced in collaboration with the New Mexico Public Education Department. On this week's podcast episode, we connect with Deming Math Specialist Melanie Alfaro, who not only is basketball royalty here in the land of enchantment, but she also is a Milken Award winner, an honor that renewed her spirit and kept her going in this profession. When I won that award, it was like a reminder that this is where I belong. And no matter how tough it gets, I am going to persevere. Melanie also will talk math strategies and her vision of where New Mexico education needs to go. So put your pencils down and listen up. We're ready to interrupt your day with one of New Mexico's teacher leaders. Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. I've heard so many great things about you, so I'm really excited to get the chance to interview you today. You are one of our New Mexico teachers that started out on a very different career path, but had that calling to come into teaching. So tell us your story about how you got into this profession. Absolutely. So thank you, Mandy, for having me today. I appreciate um, the fact that you reached out to visit with me. I um went to New Mexico State University and actually received my business degree in human resources, the whole business administration side. So I, I have a degree in uh, business administration with a focus in HR. After high school, I actually worked at a um, Hispanic advertising agency in Phoenix, Arizona. Under that business degree, Came back two years later and um, started working in the human resource department at our local hospital. So I was there for about two years. My youngest son was right about one and a half when I started thinking about his education. And I told my husband one day, I said, you know, I said, I really hope that one day our son, um, children, have some good teachers under their belt. So um, that's what kind of started getting my mind rolling. It was so weird because I was thinking this whole, maybe I need a transition into um, education when the superintendent for Deming Public Schools at that time reached out to me, randomly reached out to me, told me, what do you think about education? And I felt that the two connecting at that time, my thinking about it and her reaching out to me, was a sign that I needed to get into education. I went in under the alternative licensure program. I am one of those teachers. And that's how my whole career began, you know. I um, really aimed to be the teacher that I wanted my own children to have one day. And it's really shaped the teacher that I've become and always kept what's important at the forefront. So that's how I got into education. Uh, did not plan on it. If you would have asked me in high school, what do you want to be when you grow up? Teacher would have been the last thing I would have said. Um, I did not have much patience for kids, but obviously that has evolved and totally changed. So that's, that's my start. 
Looking back, what are some of the struggles that you had in the beginning of your career and how did you overcome those? My biggest struggle was not knowing what I didn't know. So we come out of this profession. I have a business degree. I know the world of business. And then I went into a classroom, literally cold turkey. I didn't have any educational course behind me. I had no work with students at an education level. I had a lot of uh, work and experience with students as a coach, but while a lot of people think those are the same, um, they do possess like the same qualities you need, characteristics, they are two separate, they're two separate entities. So my biggest struggle was just not knowing, not having the classroom management that I needed to keep things in line in the classroom, not knowing the content knowledge yet in the areas that I was teaching these um, children. Um, I was so lucky and grateful that my district had a mentor induction program. So when, um, you're gonna laugh because like literally the week after teaching, I had my resignation letter ready. I was gonna, I was done after a week. But my district, you know, they encouraged me just hang in there mentor induction is starting the following week so i hung in there my husband sat down with me that first week in the classroom we did a project for the kids i went in the next day and it felt like okay i think i can do this so that with attending my first mentor induction program meeting with other teachers in the district who were brand new really helped not even helped i say i tell everybody it saved my life our first meeting was on classroom management, talked about overt and covert activities, how to vary your instruction every three to five minutes. I literally took that training and went with it. And that was the lifesaver in my early stages of the career. You know, if I would not have had a district that had a program like that, I can honestly say that I probably would have turned in that resignation letter. But um, the support that the district offered, the classes that they provided to us new teachers, um, whether we were fresh out of college or alternative licensure, you know, that support was essential at that time for my career. And it started to turn those struggles into small successes that grew into bigger and bigger and bigger successes. Well, thank goodness that you didn't throw in the towel after that first week. So you went from thinking this teaching thing wasn't for you to a few years later, winning the prestigious Milken Award. What did winning that award mean for you? That award, I still, and the other the other teachers in the state who have um, received that award probably can relate to this, but I those feelings that I had that day when I think about it and when I reflect on it, they all come rushing back. I was at a point in my career where literally I mean, this is my story. This is my truth. About two weeks before winning that award, I was at my um, table in my kitchen crying. And my husband walked in and he's like, what's wrong? And I said, I don't know how much I can do this. I don't know how much longer I can do this. And he thought I was talking about something else. He's like, hang in there. It's almost um, summer. You know, he was trying to be that supportive um, hubby. And I said, no, I don't know how much longer I can teach. That I was 
so I was a little bit of a perfectionist in the classroom and I didn't have very good boundaries. Like I was at school all the time, okay? Like when it was, I should have been home cooking dinner, I was at school tutoring kids. I was that teacher. So I, it caught up with me, the exhaustion, um, the frustration, it just caught up with me. And when I won that award, I'm probably gonna start crying. Um, when I won that award, it was like a reminder that this is where I belong. And no matter how tough it gets, I am gonna persevere. It solidified for me um, what I was doing in the classroom. It solidified that, you know, it is where I belong. And it just kind of refreshed that feeling of um, exhaustion. It refreshed me and it put me on a new path. It was um, humbling to say the least, like one out of 44 teachers um, got that award that year. And we had at the time over 3 million teachers in the nation. So when you think about it like that, you know, you can't help but to stay humbled and stay thankful that um, I was blessed to, to receive that honor. I definitely can relate to you on that, Melanie. There are times when I felt like I just couldn't do it anymore. Like it was just too much, especially trying to balance it with your own uh, family life and your own children. And I think a lot of teachers go through that. I'm always amazed at people when they're, you know, 25 and 30 year veterans, and I don't know how they do it. And sometimes I wonder, like, can I really sustain that for this long? Um, you know, but then you get this one thing that motivates you and your heart just gets right back into the work. It just keeps dragging us back in. Um, so let's go to the pandemic right now. Uh, what are some of the successes and what are some of the struggles that you had during those weeks of distance learning? So one of the things um, that I'm not sure you know is that I'm actually out of the classroom now. So I am the math content specialist for Deming Public Schools. I work and support all teachers now from kindergarten through 12th grade in the area of mathematics. I um, still get to work with kids. So when I um, transitioned out of the classroom, that was one of the hardest decisions I made um, was leaving my, my babies, right? There are babies, that's what we call them, um, was leaving them. But I went out with the idea that I wanted to expand what I could offer to my district outside of the four roles in my classroom. So when we get our kiddos and we get our classes, you know, I was touching 100 kids a year, uh, give or take. If I can be in this support specialist job in my district, maybe I can now support and touch 5,000 kids in my district, you know, but I've not been on the front line of this whole digital learning. I've not had to create classes for students. I've not had to check in with parents. My role has been to offer support to teachers. So finding resources that they can use to support their digital platform. I've been in several meetings uh, with different teachers where I've just been a presence while they're teaching their kiddos. I've been in number talks to support teachers as they meet with their students. So my side of this whole digital world has been somewhat different than what the teachers have actually been involved in. 
But I would say that uh, one of the successes is that I have um, my counterpart and I, the ELA content specialist, we have been able to provide the support to the teachers that, you know, maybe you're not going to use these resources, but this is what we have available for you. And then um, one of my biggest roles has been to be in uh, the common planning time with our schools. So when we say we, I've been in a lot of meetings, I can tell you, girl, I have been in a lot of meetings uh, because I think schools started meeting more than they ever had um, than we actually were when we were in school. You know, time is precious. We sometimes don't have the time to meet as much as we would like to, but we were kind of forced, um, not maybe not forced, but we were given that luxury now to have the time to actually meet. So success for me, again, providing the resources to the teachers and also being able to be in um, more planning time sessions with teachers across our entire district. I think that one of the struggles, um, this is probably being felt statewide, not just within our district, but one of the struggles is that this is uncharted water. This is something teachers have never had to do before. So it's a learning curve for us. People might be out there saying, oh, they should have done better. They should have done this. They should have done that. What the truth that we have is that this is new to us. So while we might have done something better, we maybe didn't know about that better until we got into this work. I think teachers are on a platform right now. I think parents across the state are starting to really understand that it takes special people to do the work that we do. You know, we've seen tons of memes out there of parents like ready to send their kids back to school. So I think that parents and people around the state and nation are showing the grace and the compassion that, that we as educators deserve at this time. I think that's exactly right. It's such a terrible time for our nation right now overall. But what an interesting time for education. We can move what we're doing forward and we can grow and learn. Even though it's a hard time for educators, it's also an important time and we need to make the best of this opportunity to create change. Speaking of change, even in this day, we still have so much work to do on changing the narrative about young women going into STEM. How did you get interested in math and how do you go about motivating your female students to be excited about math too? I honestly don't know where the whole mapping came in. Like when I when I reflect back on how I started, I didn't start like with math. My first two years of teaching was at Columbus Elementary, where I was working um, math, science, social studies, and ELA. What was really nice about coming in was that I worked with a team that was very supportive. They kind of knew I was a newbie. So what we did was we standardized the department so that the teachers in the department were teaching the area that they were comfortable with and confident with. And it just so happened that out of the four, um, those four contents, math was what made me more comfortable. After those two years, Deming Intermediate School had a math opening. The principal at that time was my sixth grade practice teacher. So she was the practice teacher in my classroom when I was a sixth grader. It was so crazy the way it just kind of all came full circle. I stepped into that position of math uh, on a leap of faith 
and there's been no looking back since that day. You know, when we talk about young women in the area of mathematics and empowering them and um, not only math, but the world of STEM, like you, like you said, I don't really think I did anything special to lure or to put math on this uh, platform, I guess, for lack of a better word. But I think that more the, the things that I did in my classroom that were equitable to all of my students, including the young men that were in there, were things like, you know, I carried myself with confidence. I let my kids know that we all make mistakes. You know, there were times I made mistakes in class, and by golly, they, they were quick to point them out. But the fact that I, I was uh, vulnerable enough to say, you know what, I did make a mistake. That created a culture of risk-taking in my classroom, not only for the girls, but for the boys. And letting them know, you know, that they could be whatever they want to be. And I think the one thing that maybe I might have done that really captured a lot of them was I tied math to real life. So when we would be in a unit or I would be teaching a skill or a concept, a standard, I would always tie it into a profession that they might actually come across one day. So at the beginning of the year, they all had to tell me like what they wanted to be when they grew up. And then as we went throughout the year, I would tie the skills into those professions. So if we were doing measurement and data, you know, I would talk about baking, the chef. Or when we were talking about mean, median, and mode, we would talk about the professional sports world or the college sports world where they calculate points per game or run scored per game or batting average. So just getting them to see that this is not just numbers, but this is applicable to what you are going to be doing one day in life, I think was what really helped the young ladies and the young gentlemen in my class get the big picture of, of where math was going to play in down the road. And you, we would always laugh. Like, I think about my time with those kids, and it was so much fun. Like, you know, I would think about our sixth graders, and not all of them came in knowing their multiplication tables. So I would give them that support at the beginning of the year, and I would say, here's a, a multiplication chart. I'm going to give you till December to master these. But I would always tell them, I was honest with them. I would say, look, when you get to be old like me, you are not going to show up at Walmart and, and tell the cashier, hold on, let me take my multiplication chart out of my purse. It was, it was getting them to understand the big picture that really, I think, empowered all of the students in my class to attempt to be successful at math, and then let's celebrate math when you are successful at it. I want to go back to number talks. You had mentioned that a little bit earlier, and I really love that you mentioned that because I really like number talks, and I really think they can be an important tool for teachers in building that early numeracy and building those math foundations at the elementary level. Absolutely. So a fun fact for our district is that I have now trained 99% of our staff kindergarten through sixth grade in number talks. I want to say that out of all of our teachers in those grade levels, we only have two that need to um, receive the training. One of them is because she's brand new now. And the other one, um, you know, conflict of schedule. But I'm so excited to see the opportunities that that holds for 
for our district, K-6. Um, I think it's going to be a big game changer for us. You have been a supporter of your district's policy to bus students across the border and into Deming schools. How does that impact your school and your community, and what is your role in that? What a lot of people throughout the state do not know is that our children who come over are United States citizens. So they have the right to receive the education in our school system or any school system that they wanted to attend. I'm glad that you brought that up because it's it's a clarifying point for us. We read some sometimes negative things online about busing the kids over and all, but those are our babies. Those are our kids. And the impact that they have on our community is huge. We have an elementary school that is about four miles from the port of entry. And I would say about 80 to 90% come from across the border. Um, my percentages might be slightly off, so please um, don't hold me to that. But the majority of our, our students in that school are from Columbus, uh, from Mexico. The other portion of those kids are from Columbus Elementary. We also have probably anywhere between four to 500 students that go to our high school here. So that's a, that's a big part of our population, you know, sixth through 12th grade. So, um, of course, I'm going to support that. Those are the kids that have the right to come to school every day. And we just really appreciate them. We appreciate the experiences that they bring to us. And we, um, we enjoy teaching those kids just as much as we enjoy teaching the kids that live in the United States. To us, they're no different. Those are our kids. I, I think that it's controversial to people because they don't realize that those students are United States citizens. I think that what a lot of people, and, and this, is where, this is where the not knowing what you don't know comes in again, right? They just see a bus picking up kids at the port of entry and bringing them across to the United States. So they think that we're um, serving Mexican citizens, where in all reality, we are serving United States citizens. These children do not have the control or power to tell their parents, you need to come live in the United States. Or, um, I mean, let's just be real, their parents can't come and live in the United States because their parents may not, either both of them or one of them might not have the citizenship that they need. So it's just a matter of being up to date on what the policy entails, and knowing, I think, more than anything, what you are speaking to. So when the controversy comes up, people really have to make sure that they know the facts before they comment to it. You know, the border is such a partisan issue in our country in regard to immigration, but I really like what your superintendent, Arsenio Romero, said in an article that I found from a couple of years ago. You know, he says they're our friends, they're our family, they're just our kids. And I like how you said that too, they're just our kids. So I really appreciate the work that you all are doing down there to support those students and those families. I want to switch gears over to basketball. Tell us about your love of the game and how that started for you, because of course, 
you are now in the New Mexico State University Hall of Fame. Yeah, absolutely. So, gosh, basketball is the other part of who I am. When I was little, my dad, my dad was a very athletic um, man. He played tons of basketball, tons of baseball, tons of everything. Well, when I was a little girl, um, every Wednesday night, we would go to a gym and him and a bunch of men would play pickup basketball. As early as I can remember, I was always that little girl on the side of the court, either watching the game or trying to shoot baskets, practicing my dribbling, like it just, it, it got embedded there when I was little, always being at the gym with my dad. And um, of course, middle school started and we started seeing that, you know, gosh, you might have a little bit of potential. And um, that potential just kind of snowballed, you know. I um, went on to, to leave quite a bit of records at Deming High School. Um, I am the only Jersey in the history of Deming High School to ever be retired. There is no female basketball player that will ever be able to wear the number five for Deming High School again. So that was super exciting. Coming out of high school, I was recruited and not recruited. Um, a lot of people, when I say that, a lot of people say I was under-recruited. So what's interesting is that I only stand five, six, I'm five foot, six inches tall, and I was a post player in high school. So when you think of a post player, right, you're thinking of six foot, five, eleven. Um, I was five foot, six inches, um, putting up these huge numbers. What's so funny about that is because I was so small, the northern part of the state would always say that my coaches were padding my stats. So they would say that I was, um, they were adding points to the scorebook. They were giving me extra rebounds. Well, it wasn't until I actually played in the northern part of the state that the Albuquerque Journal ran an article that said the cat is out of the bag because they realized that I was putting up the numbers that my coaches were saying I was putting up. So under-recruited because of the fact that I was a small post player, but I was recruited, I feel, by the right people. I did have the opportunity to play basketball at a few junior colleges. I had the opportunity to play at New Mexico State University and the University of New Mexico. When it came down to it, I did choose to go to NMSU because I was an only child and I came from a small tight knit community and I felt like I owed it to my community to stay close to them. I wanted to give my community, I wanted to give my family the opportunity to go watch me play. And I knew that those opportunities would be higher if I was an hour down the road. So that's what got me into New Mexico State University and what transpired from there, like if you would have asked me if I ever would have thought I would have been in the Hall of Fame at NMSU, I would have said no. But you know, I had a tremendous work ethic that has not only carried me over on the court, but in life and in my classroom. So I'm super, super thankful that I had that opportunity to go play at NMSU, to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, and uh, use my platform now, you know, to teach students and to be a voice and to coach kids now. 
So I'm actually the, um, I coached seventh grade boys basketball here for three years. This past year, I was the junior varsity boys basketball coach. And next year, I will actually be the assistant varsity boys basketball coach. So that's kind of a little, a little shortened history version of my basketball side of me. I love that you're coaching boys. They need those different role models. And it's happening more and more. Now you even see women coaches at the professional level of men's sports. And I also love that you still give back to your community so much, and especially through sports, because sports are so important to so many of our students in New Mexico. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm a little intense. Uh, anyone who knows me knows that I'm a little intense. And I don't even know if it's intense or is it passion, right? Like sometimes they can go hand in hand. But yeah, when, when I thought, oh gosh, should I coach the girls or should I coach the boys? I knew hands down with my personality and my intensity that I needed to go the route of the boys. And, you know, it's been a great experience. They really respond well to me. At the very beginning, I, I did, I would be lying if I said I didn't wonder, how are they going to respond to a female? But you know what has been a blessing is that the, the young men that I have coached, I would say 70% of them have been young men that were in my classroom. Being with me in the classroom, they knew my expectations. They knew what they were going to need to do to um, not be a performer on the court, like a basketball player, but the expectations that I was going to have for them in the classroom, the expectations I was going to have for them as young men in our community. So I think that that has really helped me. Um, the young men who were not in my classroom, the other boys would tell them very quickly, don't mess with Coach Alfaro. <laughs> so it's, it's been an amazing experience. You know, it's really something that I love doing. And I, I definitely am glad that I can give back to my community in that regard. I have a final question for you about education in our state. Where do you see us headed? You've grown up here, gone through New Mexico schools, and now you're an educator. What does it look like? And what things do you think will be most important as we move forward? I think that education is definitely moving in the right direction. My greatest hope for this state is that we can, and that there's no really right answer here. So I hope that when people hear this, they're gracious to my response. But I really hope that as a state, we can become more aligned. I feel that at times we are um, different, obviously different districts are doing different things and that should be allowable because we're all different in different regards. But I do think that we're in the right direction in trying to get educators on the same path. One of the things that I am doing right now that I think is gonna be huge for us and this aligns to, to my vision is I'm on the New Mexico Public Education Department's Instructional Scope Committee, which is where we're taking um, the standards, math and ELA for all grade levels, and we're doing an unpacking of those standards. A lot of districts throughout the state right now are already using a somewhat similar document, but we are unpacking this so that it becomes available to all teachers in the state of New Mexico. Um, I think that's going to be instrumental for us. 
um, not only for veteran teachers, but also for our new teachers that are coming straight out of educational programs, our alternative licensure teachers who are coming in uh, with very limited education background. I think that it's even going to be a support system for maybe the long-term subs that we have in classrooms throughout the state. We just need, I think, a little clarity on what the standards involve. A lot of times we read them at face value, right? Like we read the standard and we take our interpretation of what that standard means. But when you really start unpacking that thing, you realize that there is so much more to that standard than what is at face value. So I think that in terms of the vision for the state, you know, more alignment again, and just more support for teachers in general, in the sense of um, webinars, you know, there's a lot of teachers that are constantly looking for professional development, or know our state does a, a decent job of doing that. But I think that we could um, provide a little more support there, not just within districts, but but as a state. So that might not be the right answer, but it's my answer at this point in time. I definitely feel that because of this pandemic issue that we've faced, I do think that the state of New Mexico is going to need to really develop a solid plan for a digital learning platform. This might be the only pandemic we go through in our lifetime. But if something does happen a year from now, two years from now, where we need to go digital again, I think that the state preparing and um, solidifying some procedures and all that we can do this to flow a little smoother than it did this round. And I think, I think that definitely, I mean, the vision too is that education is accessible to all of our students and families in this state. Going back to the whole what we don't know, what we don't know, we've got to make sure that we are tailoring our instruction and our um, programs within districts and when the, within the state to meet the needs of all the learners that we have. We have um, a very high population, especially in Deming, of English language learners. We just need to, we need to make sure that we're providing accessible education for all of those learners, whether they're ELLs, special education students, students on the gifted spectrum, general education students, students who have hardships at home. We just need to really make sure we're considering all of those um, aspects when uh, providing this education to our kiddos. Thanks for sharing your vision with us, Melanie. We do have a lot of work to do as a state within our districts and even within our own individual classrooms. Thanks for listening in with Melanie today. And thank you to Numoga and the NMPED. Also, thank you to the educators who tuned in to this week's Reentry Educator Town Hall. Please continue to stay engaged. May your voices be loud and your commitment to our students be even stronger than ever. Thanks for listening.